Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Climate Brief, a podcast focusing on climate news in the region stretching from Eastern Europe and Russia down to the Caucasus and Central Asia. I'm Angelina Davidova, a Berlin-based climate and environmental journalist. I am Boris Schneider, a Berlin-based climate and energy expert. We are co-producing this episode with Natalie Saw, a Paris-based climate journalist who sadly cannot be with us to comment on this one-year anniversary due to other projects in environmental journalism. Today's episode is a special episode dedicated to the sad first anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine that began last year on the 24th of February. In today's episode, we will not have uh, our usual interview guest and we will also not have our usual feature, but it will be Angelina and I discussing several points reaching from the direct environmental and climate consequences of the war in Ukraine, as well as the effects of the war for global climate negotiations and decarbonization goals. Then we will have an outlook on what the war means for energy around the globe and in Europe, And at the end, we would like to discuss the effects of the war in Russia on the Russian environmental and climate movement. Angelina, what are the environmental and climate consequences of the war in Ukraine? Well, there are direct environmental consequences of the war in Ukraine. So something which actually is happening in Ukraine. Um, as an immediate and direct result of the war and war actions. And that can be chemical pollution, chemical pollution from weapons, chemical pollution from destruction of infrastructure, various other kinds of pollution, and um, destruction of ecosystems, wildfires, death of animals, new invasive species. Um, quite a lot of direct Uh, environmental consequences of the war. They are being regularly studied by a number of international groups. There are actually um, a number of um, expert groups uh, which have been created in the last few months. One of these groups is working under the auspices of the United Nations Environmental Program. Another group is working closely with uh, Ukraine's Environmental Ministry. And um, many of this group are trying to gather data um, get more information from on the ground, but also get more information from the satellite imagery and regularly publish updates. Another group which is working with that respect, and I'm also a member of that group, is called Ukraine War Environmental Consequences Work Group. And with that group, we're also analyzing a lot of these reports and uh, trying to produce articles which will be accessible to the general public. And uh, there are many Ukrainian environmentalists actually speak about what they see on land happening, what is happening with nature-protected zones, what is happening in the forests, what is happening with um, biodiversity. So this is, so to say, direct consequences of the war in Ukraine. But then there are also uh, further environmental and climate consequences of the war in Ukraine, which can be uh, considered indirect. And that is, for example, the, the changing of the global energy market, about which we will speak a bit later, but also changes in decarbonization plans of many countries, changes in global climate agenda, changes in global mineral market or food market. As you remember, 
around May or June, there were a lot of concerns about exports of grains from Ukraine, from Russia to many countries, including countries of the global south. So um, sometimes the consequences of the war in Ukraine, the environmental consequences, they stretch very far away. There have been a number of articles and analytical reports about how decrease in supplies of fertilizers from Ukraine, from Russia, actually influence uh, countries like Argentina or Brazil, which announced new plans of cutting down rainforest uh, for the sake of uh, producing more wheat, for example, or for the sake of uh, mining of new uh, resources, which can later be used for production of fertilizers which in case of those countries might also mean taking some land away from indigenous communities. So as you can hear, um, there are various kinds of consequences, but obviously uh, global change in the energy markets, energy supply routes, also sanctions which have been introduced on uh, deliveries of fossil fuels from Russia. This is probably one of the key points and um, here I would like actually to ask you, Boris, because I know you've been following this topic quite a while. So what has been happening with the global energy market and the regional energy markets? Where are we now a year since the beginning of the war? So looking at the energy markets, we can start in Europe, precisely in the EU. And since the beginning of the war, the EU managed to substitute nearly three quarters of its uh, Russian gas imports. As our listeners surely know, uh, the EU was quite dependent on Russian imports, um, on Russian gas imports. And to many, it seemed that um, replacing them in the short to midterm would not be an easy task. But um, as the numbers show us, this has uh, worked already to 75%. And at the same time, the total gas demand in the EU went down by about 10% during the first nine months of the of the year 2022. And we can expect this trend to fall um, even more in the future. However, with the substitution of Russian gas, um, the EU is getting new gas contracts. Um, we are speaking about liquefied natural gas. And here are some, some dangers and some risks, as many analysts are saying, because we are getting excess import capacity in the course of creating those new import structures for LNG. And uh, some research is showing us that the development of this LNG capacity could provide 65% more gas than Russia was actually supplying at the end of last year. So we have to be very careful that we don't create uh, lock-ins that will tie us or that will tie um, the European energy markets to fossil fuels for decades to come. There are also forecasts that say that the global gas demand is expected to peak before the end of this decade, so before the end of the 2020s. And about um, 90% of the growth in electricity demand will be met by renewables over the next three years. Yeah, And at the same time, only 1% of the growth of the global electricity demand is expected to be met by fossil fuels. So 
those are numbers that um, with regard to a successful energy transition are quite optimistic. Also, it should be mentioned that uh, gas and coal prices, or rather higher gas and coal prices as a result of the invasion, accounted for almost 90% of the electricity costs increase around the world in 2022. So the argument that the energy transition is making um, electricity, let's say, way more expensive or that the energy transition is um, at fault for the, the electricity cost crisis that we, that we have seen since last year is uh, just plain wrong. And um, at least in Europe, the government's committed over 75 billion euro to protect consumers from the negative impacts of rising energy prices. It is also worth mentioning that the European Union spent more than 250 billion euro on gas imports in the first nine months of the year, which is 186 billion euro more than was spent in the same period in the previous year. So this is a rise of almost 300%. So you see that in the, let's say, the, the short-term effects of the, of the war for European consumers would have been very difficult to, to carry and would have been very expensive without those support packages from the European Union. And while we speak about those huge numbers, let's also mention Western energy sanctions against Russia. It is said that they are costing the Russian Federation around 200 million euro per day. Um, and that means that the Russian deficit by now has reached, uh, according to some estimates, about 25 billion US dollars. And another big, big, big financial um, problem that Russia is facing right now is the EU ban on um, oil-derived products from Russia. This ban was implemented in several stages, uh, but so to say, counting all the oil-related bans together, we can say that the tax revenue of Russia from oil and gas exports dropped by almost 50% from January 2022 to January this year. At the same time, government uh, spending increased about 60% due to the war expenses in Ukraine. And this obviously also contributed to this public deficit of, as mentioned before, 25 billion US dollars in January 2023. The last number I'm going to mention is that Russia is expected to lose more than 1 trillion US dollar in oil and gas export revenues by the end of the 2020s. And this number goes back to the International Energy Agency's head of energy supply. Wow, those were indeed a lot of figures and um, a lot of new trends. And um, very often when we speak about how the global energy market have changed, we actually do not grasp all these changes which you've just outlined. So it does look like the world is living through a major time of energy reform. And um, we've actually been trying to follow these changes in quite a number of the episodes which we did this year. We should also possibly mention that ever since the beginning of the full-scale war in Ukraine in late February last year, we changed the topics of our podcast and actually decided to concentrate more on particular consequences of the war in Ukraine. 
and um, with many guests and with many experts, we were speaking about uh, uh, various topics, including what's happening with the energy sector, what's happening with uh, sanctions on Russian oil and gas, what's happening with the global mineral sector, what's happening with Russia's climate policy. And um, so I strongly encourage you to go back and um, listen to the previous episodes we produced. And um, I would also like to add that all these changes within the energy debate, they obviously had an influence on the global climate debate. Uh, we tried to follow everything around COP27 and Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, uh, and also earlier the climate negotiations in Bonn last summer, and see how um, this, the war and consequent changes in, in the energy sector also influence global climate debate. And um, there I have a feeling in the first few months, there were a lot of fears that the climate will become less relevant, less attention will be paid to the topic and less money will be given uh, in forms of climate finance. I think towards the end of the year, it looks like most of these fears didn't come to life and didn't uh, get fulfilled, luckily. However, the results of COP27, they were still mostly about rights. So a new track on loss and damage was created, but then we didn't see that many climate commitments from countries, like new climate commitments from countries. And also in terms of climate finance, um, like we, many countries didn't speed up the contributions to the UN or further climate funds. But overall, my perception is that uh, climate agenda does not get less attention. It actually still gets a lot of attention. And uh, I think there are many more talks these days about something which is called the interconnected crisis. So both climate crisis and biodiversity crisis, but also crisis around the war in Ukraine and subsequent crisis with, uh, once again, energy supplies, soaring prices for food, so in prices for energy, but also um, uh, supply and chain issues. And many of these crises kind of in the world come into, into a single interconnected crisis. And there's a lot of talk about how, how the world is going to deal with that and how we need to change uh, our political systems, our lives, our consumption patterns, but also our uh, probably values about what is important in life and how do we want to live and how do we want to consume resources and uh, build life around us. But oh well, this is probably something for another episode when we will be talking about systemic change. Indeed, Angelina. And could you tell our listeners what the war has meant so far and what it still means for the Russian environmental and climate movement? Well, an immediate reaction was that many experts on environmental and climate topics uh, have left Russia and um, they are being located in many countries around the globe from Georgia to Lithuania and from Germany to Turkey. Um, so that was trend number one. Uh, trend number two is that uh, many environmental movements which, as we remember, were actually uh, very much present and very much growing in Russia in the last few years. Um, they uh, So many of these movements uh, put their campaigns on a pause for the few first months of the war. But then what we saw and what we experienced is that many of these campaigns resumed. So basically, um, there's still environmental activism in Russia, not so much pure climate activism, but more of an 
regional environmental activism across various regions in Russia. And um, the main topics that people get organized around are also still the same. Air pollution, access to environmental information, green zones, green areas in, in the cities and try um, attempts to keep them and prevent them from being chopped down in order to build new infrastructure. And finally, the question of waste. Waste management, plans to build new incineration plants. There are actually um, quite a lot in the news how uh, international sanctions have also hindered plans to build new incineration plants. But uh, now it doesn't look like that. It looks like this the state is willing to go forward with that, which brings many regional um, environmental campaigners um, for further environmental protests. And then against that continuation of the trend, we also see how many environmental activists are being prosecuted. Five NGOs have been declared to be foreign agents in 2022. Three of them have decided to um, shut down. Uh, many further activists have been prosecuted also personally. Uh, some like, criminal cases have been started against some of them and, and some others got administrative prosecution and got fines. And um, like one of Russia's most renowned um, climate activist, Arshak Makichan, who left Russia and who is uh, now also in Germany. So he had his Russian citizenship revoked because his family came from Armenia when, when he was a little child. So we see these trends continue. And also from my understanding, the topics of environment and climate and sustainability, they remain to be very important for um, for many people in Russia. But now in current conditions of the war, it's obviously not always easy to work on these topics. As I said, there are still some regional movements who are trying to continue with the campaigns. Also, probably another topic which I still haven't mentioned are campaigns against oil extraction and open peat mines and oil coal processing and coal transportation. And um, this is another topic which can potentially be connected to climate activism as well. There was also a very interesting case. As, um, actually, Boris and I are based in Germany, and the whole case around the Lutzerat, the village of Lutzerat, I was very much in the news here when um, there were plans of a company called RVA to um, start extraction of coal next to this village. And there was a protest going on for months. And um, I mean, in the end, the police have raided the camp and it was closed down. And surprisingly, uh, very far away in Kuzbas, which is in southern Siberia, uh, Russian anti-coal activists have also recorded a video supporting anti-coal um, activists in Germany, which I thought was a very beautiful case. Anyway, we'll continue tracking what's happening, what's happening on the global climate agenda, energy agenda, what's happening in Ukraine with regard to immediate environmental consequences, what's happening with the green reconstruction plans of Ukraine. That's another very important topic. We'll also continue looking at what uh, uh, Russian environmental movement is like, environmental climate movement, also what's happening in the area of climate movement in Ukraine. So all these topics will certainly be on our agenda this year as well. That's it for today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review and share the episode on social media. 
Our podcast is supported by NOST, a Berlin-based NGO backing cross-border journalism, the Moscow Times and the European Climate Foundation. A big thank you to our three partners for making our work possible. We'd love to know your thoughts on the topics we discuss in each episode. Get in touch on Twitter where you will find us at Eurasian Climate. If you can, please support our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash Eurasian Climate. We'll be back soon with a new episode, so see you then. Mm-hmm.